one of the most important thing as we continue on our Sermon on the Mount is asking this question. What is true Christianity according to Jesus? And Sermon on the Mount presents clear picture for us and as I mentioned, it begins with our being before we go into our doing. And there are so many pseudo-Christianities out there and the ones that who are loudest tend to be the most troublesome distortment of the way of Jesus. And uh, I don't know about you, but as I'm meditating on this more and more, I have just holy anger in me. That the prosperity, prosperity gospel in our day and age is the most loudest and popular, and it actually we are actually exporting that to Latin America and, and even to Asia, and then welcoming those messages on TV and multimedia. Let's practice this sermon, not because our opinion is better than others or my opinion matters, but as we seek the guidance of the Spirit, and scripture, and let's be mindful to be guided what Jesus is saying. Beatitude uh, number one to eight actually is a depiction of kingdom values. Should I say a portrait of a, every believer in the kingdom of God? And then here's a little quick recap. Blessed are those, blessed are the poor in spirit, for there is the kingdom of God. That was the first beatitude we studied on last Sunday. But how it begins is this. True Christianity is not about mere transformation of our environment, but about transformation of our being. I intentionally put the word Christianity for us to think about the big picture of that. But maybe more closer day-to-day language when you think about as a Christian, what is salvation? What is going to heaven look like? And the typical distortment of the salvation is change of environment. Perfect environment. And it's a uh, rampant in everywhere in the, in the culture, too. If you turn on the TV and watch any kind of movies about, about heaven, it's a perfect condition, paradise. The things that you want to do, you could do all day long. The things that you could do, you eat all day, you could eat without getting fat. It's a perfect environment. Is it right? See, the, all the disturbance of the, the real truth is a truth taken to extreme. In some sense, it is right. 
there will be no more crying, no more death, no more sickness in heaven. But in that perfect place, the, the reason why it's a perfect is God is holy and it's a sinless place. But if we don't change, we're going to bring our sins into that without change of our being. That is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And the, it begins with the bad news, isn't it? All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. In other words, there's nothing in us good enough to make our life to be accepted by God's righteousness standard. So hence the point, the blessed are the poor in spirit, for there is the kingdom of God. It's not blessed are people who are trying to be humble, and then God will accept them. And that was your beginning of a Christian walk, and now you're rich. No, the blessed are the poor in spirit is to realize who you are. Who we really are in front of God is nothing. Our self-righteousness, like the ones that Pharisees had, is a dirty rags to God. So think about this. What, what, it, what is Christianity all about? Is not so much about, although it includes, change of environment, our environment, but essentially it's a change of our being. That is why it begins with inner transformation. Number two, the transformation of our being begins with acute realization of our spiritual bankruptcy, which empties out all self-righteousness and and self-reliance within us. Do you realize this? This first beatitude is most offensive axiom to the unbelieving unbelieving world. The main uh, pulsating word, the concept of strength in America is self-reliance. Believe in yourself. Jesus is saying, your, your best and your belief is not good enough. And number three, in the kingdom of heaven, everyone who is poor in spirit, and this is the point that I think we need to cling on to even more as we continue through the Sermon on the Mount, Because only continual emptiness can receive continual feeling of God's grace. Lest we think that in the beginning of becoming a Christian, we we needed to acknowledge our sinfulness. I was bad, I was lost, and I I was doing all this. But now, I cleaned up my act. But if you are having that sense of righteousness because of who you are, you are missing the whole point 
of Jesus' gospel. So in some sense, this could be our spiritual audit. Asking question, do I sense spiritual poverty? Beggar-like poverty. It's, it's not a uh, little lacking anything. It's a completely resourceless. You don't have a dime or penny spiritually. You don't have a resource. As Jesus said, apart from me, the vine, you can do nothing. So if you don't have that, I think it's a good reason to really think about, am I truly a Christian? And then you probably said, oh, of course, I've been 20 years, 30 years, I've been going to church. The work of the Spirit, by grace, happens. This is not something that we decide to have it overnight and just my self-effort and merit, it could produce that. When we receive God's grace, our eyes are open, the eyes of the heart. And we see our true self in that. And do you realize this? If that's the really, the beginning point of the inner transformation, today's beatitude, blessed are those who mourn, for they, will, they shall be comforted, is actually the, the natural outcome, subsequent process that happens. The poor in spirit is the beginning point, mere beginning point, and in, in the sense that there is a progression to that. And the first four, once again, is God is working on us, sanctifying us in terms of emptying false righteousness. The, the second line, the four, less four, is actually filling of imputed righteousness of Christ and what that looks like in terms of fruitfulness. When we are poor in spirit, we will be merciful because we know our own spiritual bankruptcy. When we are mourning for our sinfulness, our depravity, we will be able to have an utter sincereness of heart, which is a purity of heart, and so on. Just like last Sunday, the first thing we need to do is take a look at what does it mean, what does it not mean when Jesus said, blessed are those who mourn. What kind of mourning is this? Have you heard this? Sometimes when you go to funeral, you hear this passage. And many of us lost someone dearly uh, to our heart our loved ones, and even in our family. The first thing that we need to realize in this context, Jesus is not talking about mourning over human pain, suffering, bereavement. 
that when the time comes when you feel like a, the whole world is crushing upon your shoulder and then you feel like crying, that's not the type of mourning Jesus is talking about. This mourning came from spiritual poverty, bankruptcy. And then we see every day ongoing realization of helplessness over this sin, powerless over this sin. And then we become even more realized as spiritually growing, instead of accumulating righteous deeds, we become deeper realizing there's a deeper realization of our sinfulness, depravity. That's actually spiritual wisdom. The more you become aware of your sinfulness, instead of depending on your own wisdom, depending on your religious practices, you become utterly dependent on God daily. And let's once again realize it's not when you are beginning of your Christian life. But nowadays, even coming next week, continuous realization, deeper realization, and your confession of spiritual poverty will naturally lead to contrition of your heart, grieving, groaning heart. So what does it mean then? It means to mourn over sin and its ramification. And as I mentioned, this is a natural flow or, or a subsequent follow-through from the being poor in the spirit. And it is a godly sorrow as opposed to the sinful sorrow. There are sinful sorrows as if um, we, we, we become um, unaware of it. But if you think about Amnon, who was filled with loss in the Old Testament because of this half-sister. And because of, in our, in our days, when you think about the, uh, in living in Orange County, let's say, you really wanted this house, or you really wanted this car. Half jokingly, but in the half joking sense, there's a true truthfulness in that, too. People are wailing over not having that. That's sinful wailing, sinful mourning. But godly mourning is when you begin to realize how God sees your life and how God sees your sins. And no longer we can shrug our shoulder and move on. And the part of it is not just the sins in our lives, but the groaning of our powerlessness.
This much is true. If you trivialize sin, you will be never able to mourn over sin. We are living in the culture of trivialization of all kinds of sins. And we don't even use the word sin anymore. Misstep, my junk, my bad. So furthermore, let's think about what does it really look like? This is still conceptual. And there are two types of mourning over sin. The first mourning over sin is over our sins. And let me provide two examples, biblical examples. The first one is King David. Psalm 6. The backdrop of Psalm 6 is his story of his adultery and murder. Bathsheba was bathing. And as a king, he roamed around when there's a war going on. And his lust took over his heart. This, the man after own God's own heart and committed adultery to cover up Uri the Hittite that he wanted to bring him, let him sleep, go, to, go home and let him sleep with, with Bathsheba, but he wouldn't. Just a, a soldier of integrity and loyalty, and he's sleeping at, at the palace against the wall along with other soldiers while there's a war going on. So he reluctantly, and maybe he wasn't really thinking clearly, and whatever the rationalization was, as a king's power, he sent him to the front line and he's asking the commanding officer to put him out there in the fiercest battle. So Uri died. And he was okay for a while until Prophet Nathan pointed that long finger at him. You're the one. And then this is part of Psalm 51 is very famous. Have mercy on me, O God, and his prayer. But this is more of a, uh, brings back more of his emotion, how he's feeling. In Psalm 6, six verse 1, O Lord, rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath. Jumping to verse 6, listen to this. I am weary with my mourning. Every night I flood my bed with tears. I drench my couch with my weeping. When there is a God's grace of opening his eyes to see his sin the way God sees. And of course, a little bit of exaggeration in terms of uh, hyperbole. But he was weeping so much that his entire bed was wet.
I'm not asking for emotional experience. But do you remember the moment that God's grace come upon you and touched your heart and you were horrified about your sins? The morning was natural for you? And true Christians have that experience. Not necessarily how much you cried and how long you cried or the, was it dim room or was it the campfire or was it music playing background? But a genuine contrition, a contrite heart was there. Let me tell you my story. I was ninth grade. I've been going to church all my life. My, my mom's side was a Christian family. I don't remember not being in church. But that particular year, when I, when I turned 13 and uh, going into the 14, it was a strangely sensitive year. This is my ninth grade high. I was an early maturing adolescent. I was a popular kid because I was athletic. But I had all these spiritual doubts. Why am I a sinner? And the stories of retreat at church. And then um, during the retreat, the, the first night the preacher was speaking, I don't remember what preacher's name was or whatnot. All I clearly remember was when he preached that God is light. And all of a sudden, I felt like I was exposed, not because of what I have done so much. I did some bad things as a teenager, early maturing adults, experimented a few things. But it's the fact that I was claiming autonomy apart from God. I want to be, have, have this independent apart from God as if I am equal to God. All, all those things, conceptually, I understood before, but this is what happened. It wasn't campfire. The light was still on. Preacher was still speaking. And the Holy Spirit touched my heart. And right in the middle of the seat, and this taller guy, kid, is crying. I couldn't stop crying. There was an aching in my heart. I felt self-conscious. And I tried so hard to stop crying. And the kids begin to notice that I'm... <laughs> I couldn't. Well, that night, I cried a second time when I heard the cross of Jesus Christ and how God loved me. And I still remember that night. How many times have, that, have I that heard that message but as I coming out of the, the, the worship room it was a dark and the trees and the mountain was windy it sounded like he was clapping God is welcoming me so I pray even as I speak today that our Community will be touched by the grace of God. Holy Spirit will reveal in the way that that we will we will be open. Our eyes will be open to things that we used to trivialize. 
Apostle Paul is on a more uh, internal way. In Romans 7, verse 24 to 25, we're actually starting with verse 18. Um, I changed that a bit. 18, 19, and 24. Listen to this. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Of course, this is one of the most controversial uh, passage and text. But I believe very straightforwardly from your pastor. I think this is a very mature stage of Christian life for, for Paul. This was not non-Christian Paul. He was trying to obey God's law. But any effort that he does, it will reveal more sin. Have you ever done that? Now when you, when you <coughs> listen to the message or read the Bible, and, and for the first time it's like, okay, I'm going to love the people around you, starting with my, my house, you know, my family, uh, the close co-workers. The moment that you really decide that you will find out how incapable you are. Until then, you think that you have a full of love because you don't, you don't hate anyone. Have you ever noticed that? Whenever you think you're good enough, you're comparing yourself to with others. But sitting before God, the one very little thing God commends us, for Paul, it was an internal thing. You know, Ten Commandments, all of the, those things. Like, you know, covetousness. Do not covet. Other things are external. And then he got stuck with covet. Because internal thing. The very thing that I just mentioned happened. He decided not to covet. And all these evil, ugly things that he saw arising in, 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 them, in him. Why should we cry and weep over and mourn over our sin? Because of this. And somehow, American Christianity put us in a very high esteemed. You believe in yourself and believe the positive things. Dream the big dreams that God has given you. Unless there's emptiness, unless there's utter brokenness, God's grace doesn't come. Andrew Murray is so right. The grace of God, when you find a base, as if the water brook finds, flows from always from top to bottom. The moment grace of God finds you low in a base, His grace flows in. The second type mourning, or before that, remember the, the theme of the whole Sermon on the Mount is 
Christian counterculture. Be, do not be like them. And not only from the secular world, from, but also to the religious world, nominal Christians and church culture as well. So what's the counterculture here? The world is saying, a sin? What sin? Deny it? Rationalize it? Blame others for it? When it all fails, trivialize it. Jesus is saying, you are blessed when you weep over your sins because that very deep contrition will bring you God's comfort of forgiveness and love. Joy begins here when you experience God's forgiveness and love on a day-to-day basis. Second type of mourning is mourning over others' sin. Prophet Jeremiah, his nickname is Weeping Prophet. Crybaby of the Old Testament. And I can hardly imagine his role in day-to-day. It's a lot of other, other prophets are given the role. So God's command is, the day of the Lord is coming. Repent. If you repent, God will deliver you. Oh, that's a still very hopeful message. Like Jonah's role was that too. But Jeremiah, tell them they're going to perish. Tell them to give in to the captives. And there are false prophets, patriot prophets. You know what they're saying? God is with us. God will never happen, make that happen to us. His dwelling place, the Jerusalem, the city of David is right here. So what do you think people did? He per- they persecuted him. They were trying to kill him too. But amidst of all that, Jeremiah grappled by the God's grace. He's crying. He's weeping for his nation, for the people whom God has chosen, and the depravity and hopelessness of their state. In Jeremiah 9.1, he says, Oh, that my head were waters and my eyes a fountain of tears that I might weep day and night for the slain of the daughter of my people. Have you ever done that? It's not your fault and it's not even your child. Because we have a special love for our children. But let's say your friends or your parents or your long-distance relatives or your college roommate. And they're going astray from sin, going astray from God. And they're living in sin. And they become more hardened in their hearts. This is a time to mourn for them. And Jeremiah's heart is that beats with Christ's heart with compassion. And there is a two sides of this compassion. And one is the, the concern for their future. 
eternal doom is waiting for them. The, the, way of the, the day of the Lord is coming. The other side is the love for God and the Father is so great. It's as if your friends are cussing at your dad or putting down at your dad or taking advantage of, that, of your dad. That holy anger was there. Broken. My, my dad. My Abba father. Is insulted. The psalmist word. It's Psalm 119. Because they do not obey your law. I cry all day long. And this is my paraphrase. One more, and Jesus himself, and as uh, Jesus is um, going through the city of Jerusalem, Luke chapter 19, verse 41 to 42. When he drew near and saw the city of Jerusalem, he wept over it and saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. But now they're hidden from your eyes. And so once again, it's the same, similar thing that because of their sinful, hardened heart, the city of Jerusalem will be swallowed up. Your, your, your children will be taken as well. And Jesus is Weeping over the city. This is so foreign to us. Strange to us. Why? Because the world is saying, why let other sin affect you? Forget it. Stay away from their troubles. They made you their own best. And they have to live in it. Let them live and lie in it. Mind your own business. But Jesus is saying, loving others genuinely means to care for them enough to feel the pain of their sins and to mourn over their sins that break God's heart. By God's grace, I had a glimpse of this experience. Um, back in my in college day, and so I'm working with uh, Campus Ministry, Campus Crusade for Christ. Now it's called Crew. I still remember I'm praying for my friends. I cried one day in my prayer, and I couldn't believe what I was praying. What was I praying? Something like this, God, unless you bring my friends back to your bosom, I have no peace. I will not relent, Lord. Have mercy on them. 
And then I was just overwhelmed by the Holy Spirit's desire for them. And I, as I finished crying, and what was that? Like, I was crying like a baby and asking for God. And I'm not Moses. I'm not Apostle Paul. And I'm putting my life on the line. And uh, I don't want to put Wade on the spot. Or I still remember the Wade and Helen as they're praying for the unreached people group. and kneeling down. Their heart and passion and compassion for them. Their heart was not detached prayer. It's an aching heart. And they start praying with uh, the, uh, this is the first time back in 2001 when Derwin and I were escorting Cindy and I still remember kneeling down and the house church young pastor was praying in Chinese. All kinds of tears, like, like crying out. I didn't understand one word of it. But I felt the Spirit's desire that God will have mercy on them open their eyes. The spiritual audit. When you look at United States, where we are morally, in terms of society, the health of the nation, are you concerned? Of course, we are all concerned. But what comes first? Blaming shifting or criticizing one party or the other? Does that break your heart? Because Father, our Father is offended, insulted, forgotten. We become adulterous nation. And at the heart of it, it's not really the liberals or the politicians, but at the condition of church. If we become what Christ calls us to be, salt and light, And he will lead us to mourning. Lest you think that I'm all, all about this gloomy thing. But this is a paradox. Paradox is, according to G.K. Chesterton, paradox is a truth standing upside down, scre- screaming for attention. The blessed life is when you are miserable and unhappy because of your sins. How does that happen? Martin Lloyd-Jones writes it beautifully, eloquently for us. So many people spend all their lives in trying to find this Christian joy. They say they would give the whole world if they could only find it. But they have failed to see that They must be convicted of sin before they can ever experience joy. They do not like the doctrine of sin. They dislike it intensely and they object to its being preached. 
They want joy apart from the conviction of sin, but that is impossible. It can never be obtained. Those who are going to be converted and who wish to be truly happy and blessed are those who first of all mourn. And I will add, along with Lloyd-Jones here, not only our conversion process. If your life, Christian life is dull, numbness, the word numbness describes you how you feel day to day in your Christian walk. We ought to pay attention to that. It begins with mourning that leads to joy. And this is a continuous mourning, continuous receiving joy. As, as, as the first beatitude says, but continuing emptiness for continuing feeling. Um, what is the blessing Jesus is talking about? For, their, for, for they shall be comforted. There's a three kinds of comfort. The first comfort is comforted by God's forgiveness of sins. Because of the, the tense of the word, or the sentence, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. We, we could think about, once again, when we go to heaven. Remember, the kingdom of God is already here, but not yet. Tasting now, but consume fully later. There will be a full comfort from, from God. So in other words, the good news is this. If we mourn, the way that Jesus is describing as a citizen, true citizen of God's kingdom, if we mourn, we can experience comfort today, right now, as well as in the future. The first one is comforted by God's forgiveness of sins. In uh, 2 Corinthians 7.10 says, For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. May I remind you, when you are uh, using my example, when I was uh, stubborn about my being right in terms of my conflict with my wife, and usually I'm the only one, I'm the first one, says I'm sorry. So this time on, I'm going to wait until I will never go to her until she comes to me and sees her. I'm going to be a man. <laughs> Believe me, there's a strange sense of power that I'm going, as I'm doing that, I feel powerful. I feel actually okay. I don't feel needy. I don't need her. But what is beginning to worry is that, uh-oh, the color of my heart changes. gets hardened. Scary hardened. I still remember a few weeks ago, 
baby, I cannot live without you. Now he's like, I don't need you. Go away. I don't need you. So there's a, there's a, uh, in spite of the ugly side of sin, there's a sweetness of sin. Being stubborn and unbroken in my own heart. But suddenly, when I'm spending time with God, God, Holy Spirit convicts me, and I finally give in and go to her, and I say, uh, without qualification, Holy Spirit always numb. The nudging of that is that uh, if you felt this way, I'm sorry. No, no, I, sweetie, I'm I was wrong. I have sinned this way. Would you please forgive me? Of course, she's ready. And she's responding. I mean, the split second of that, I sense this flow of God's grace. You know what I'm talking about. And all of a sudden, you're hungry because you now have appetite to eat. Second type of com- comfort is comforted by spirit's power over sin. So the, our hopelessness and helplessness is real, but God doesn't leave us, leave us that way. That's why the Holy Spirit resides in every single believer. Romans 8, verse 5 to 6, For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. Comfort is that fact that we are helpless without the power of the Holy Spirit. But when we surrender, we become broken, we are yielded to the Spirit, and all of a sudden, things that I cannot do, I am able to do it because the power of the Holy Spirit. Have you noticed that? And even this coming week, there will be a prompting, small voice of the Holy Spirit. Do not put it out. And if you childlike, like Irina did, obey. And you will sense Supernatural power. And not only comfort, the joy comes. Third kind of comfort. Comforted by the promise of sinless future. In Revelation 21, 4, and the, uh, the theological word for that is we will experience glorification. The justification is in the past, isn't it? Justification, God declaring that we are not sinful anymore. God's, Christ imputed righteousness upon our heart. He sees us through the imputed righteousness on Christ on us. So we, are, we have been saved and freed from the power, from the from the penalty of sin, and the 
the second part of now, ongoing thing is a sanctification. We are being freed or saved from the power of sin. But someday, when we see Jesus face to face, glorification happen, we shall be freed from the presence of sin. We shall struggle no longer. On that day, Revelation 21, 4, pictures for us. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and their death, and the death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. So the consummation of God's comfort fully in the future. There's two things I want to do. I think it's clear enough for us. The first thing I want to do is maybe we could think about what now application. How do we live out the beatitude? The second thing is maybe we should listen and pause and listen to the Holy Spirit who is here, who is residing in each one of us. And here's simply the four, uh, three uh, application. The first thought is break up your hardened heart. Jeremiah 4, 3 expression is break up your fallow ground and sow not among thorns. This is a farming analogy. And I'm a city boy, so I have not, I have no idea what gardening looks like. But all I know is that whatever that farmers use to break up, follow ground, harden ground, plow the ground to make it soft, to tender before the seeds are planted. So think about our heart. How do you do that? Let's start with the confession of God, my heart is so hard and my heart is no, numb. I don't feel any, anything bad about the, just the condition that I'm in spiritually. Or have mercy on me. That will be one. And then what the psalmist is doing is which something that we should do. To command our soul and, and declare war on our hearts. If necessary, we should fast without telling anyone. Whatever the means of grace, spiritual discipline is. For me, I usually go away. Like a coffee shop or somewhere that no one really bothers me. And I hang out long enough that God softens my heart. At least a little bit of it. Some, for some brothers and sisters, journaling works beautifully. The point is, when your heart is hardened, keep doing what you're doing and open the Bible, going to church and, and the men's group and home group, the seed is not even going in down anymore. You sing hymns and gospel songs, you just 
No feeling. The second thing is, we can't do it, so ask God to convict your heart. Along with Psalm, uh, King David, in Psalm 139, search my heart, O God, and see if there is any wicked, grievous way in me. Could you try that? Holy Spirit will, will bring up things to you. Do not reject, you know, all, all, everything else but not that. And third and last one is draw near to God in brokenness. The, the, the typical lie of the enemy, I'm speaking from my own experience. That I become suddenly noble. I, I'm so messed up. I'm, I, you know, I can't believe I'm a pastor. I can't believe I'm a Christian. So I'm going to clean up my little my act a little bit, and then go to God. It's it's sense irrational, but the schemes of the devil is that cunning. And that we are buying into that stupid idea. I know what you're thinking. Some of you say, I haven't doing really well. I haven't spent time with a quiet time. Last time I prayed, I don't know, really on, on my own, my, in my room, a long, long, long time, I don't remember. I didn't crack the Bible whole week, maybe several months and several years. I need special treatment of, of that. No. There's nothing good inside of you. You need to come to the physician and say, help me. Have mercy on me. James, half-brother of Jesus, our Lord, writes in James chapter 4, verse 8 to 10, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, and you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. Brothers and sisters, I have a good news for you. As I'm praying for you this past week, I have a deep conviction the Holy Spirit will restore several of you. Only if you are childlikely surrender your heart. Would you pray with me? Dear Lord Jesus, and thank you for this paradox of spiritual truth. And thank you that this, the very thing 
is your work, that you have begun a good work in us, that it is not entirely up to us. But Lord, would you allow your grace to fall upon us, our church, and the, and the people who are sitting in this room. I pray that you will open the eyes of our hearts to be able to, sins, to see the sins that breaks your heart in our attitude, in our posture, as well as in our deeds. And Lord, help us to see the joy in the end of that process of mourning. Joy that is supernatural, joy that is unspeakable, joy that is only comes from the Heavenly Father who loves us and forgives us and who promises the hope of the sinless world in the future. How has God spoken to you through this message? I would love to just provide some space between you and God. And like I said, don't say, I'm going to clean up and come back to you. Whatever that comes to your mind. And confess, surrender, draw near to God. Father, thank you for this good news. And thank you that you care enough for us that Holy Spirit is continually nudging us. I pray for our church that you will keep us uh, closer to your bosom. And as we draw near to you, Father, thank you for the truth that you will draw near to us. Have mercy on us and our church. And, and in, the, in the name of our Lord Jesus and through the blood of Christ, we give you, we give you our, our hearts and our all and giving you praise. In the name of the Father, of the Son, of the Holy Spirit. Amen.